This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. We have a lot of things to talk about, uh, but first, um, two things. First, I'd like to uh, wish Happy Eid to the Muslim community, Eid al-Adha, all over the world, and to all our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area and the United States and across the globe. Uh, Happy Eid. Eid uh, al-Adha starts for most people on Friday. Then the uh, second thing is the biggest news, actually, of the day. The uh, devastation that is ongoing in in Houston, you know, as uh, now the government and uh, the state of Houston uh, begin uh, to assess uh, the uh, damage from Hurricane Harvey, which left a a trail of devastation. It's uh, been six days since uh, Hurricane Harvey roared ashore in southeastern Texas, causing a huge damage and joining us in the studio right here to talk about the damage and to talk about many other things is our reporter extraordinaire uh, Phil Pasquini and of course uh, Phil is a uh, reporter and a photojournalist for uh, the Washington Report. Welcome again Thank you. to our studio right here in San Francisco Phil. So uh, you've been watching what's happening, and we're going to talk about many things from the hurricane to your observations in Washington, D.C., and I should remind our listeners that Phil spends half the year in Washington, D.C., and the rest of the year between California and abroad in the Middle East, in Europe, in Turkey, and many other places uh, where we're going to be talking about those issues here. But uh, my question, seeing things, I mean, this is, of course, not the first hurricane. Uh, we've seen what happened in the East Coast. Um, what was it now? I, I forget, two years ago, two, three years ago? Uh, Katrina, uh, well, Katrina was first and then Sandy. Sandy. That was, and, and we were in New York during Sandy, and that was an amazing experience. Right. And, and now uh, we're seeing what's happening in, in Houston, and the rest, of course, the surrounding areas in Texas and, and, and Houston is a major, major city. Texas is a major state for the United States. And my question, just uh, from your observations, from what we've been hearing, is America's infrastructure crumbling? Uh, well, I would say in general overall, but I think the key significant thing about Texas and Port Arthur and Houston and these other areas is that there's so many refineries in areas that are flooding and they've been built without any regard respective possibly to that as an ongoing condition but i think the worst part of it is is the denial of climate change by our illustrious leader who announced when he pulled out of the paris accords there was virtually no such thing and i covered a number of demonstrations in front of the white house which were very profound and significant immediately after he began talking about that. Now we're talking about a thousand-year storm when we used to talk about hundred-year storms less than 20 years ago, and those hundred-year storms were oddities, and now you can see things accelerating at a greater pace, and by not paying attention to science and not paying attention to uh, the conditions. I think our infrastructure is, is weak in terms of it being able to combat against these things, building something like Houston, which should have never been built in a swamp in a low-lying area, 
and spreading out into the surrounding areas. There's a good article in the New York Times this morning about the vulnerability that was built into the city as it expanded. So I, I would say, you know, when you refine a third of the capacity of gasoline in the country and that number of refineries that are involved in that or in an area pl- prone to flooding, that's not really very good planning. Um, you saw the chemical plants probably blow up on TV today with uh, problems that, you know, the backup generators didn't work. That happened in Sandy when we were there. The backup generators were below ground, so they flooded immediately. Now the new buildings and they're retrofitting buildings by bringing generation capacity up above what would be the high water mark, like on the 10th or 15th floor, if not the roof, in order to make it less susceptible to damage when you have a storm. So I would agree with what you're asking, and that is, is our infrastructure really bad? In some ways, we know there are crumbling bridges, but some of the other things that we should have been uh, much more uh, vigilant about, we haven't, and we're beginning to see the the uh, fruition of that now with global warming as it moves forward. Science does matter, as people have said. Science does matter, and and then you brought a very important topic: is the this denial of. Uh, global warming by right. our sitting president now, Donald Trump, and, and maybe by many in his uh, administration. But also, uh, it struck me like we, we always, uh, when I was uh, watching TV and those horrific images and the rescue, and then I keep hearing about uh, the levees, right. you know, giving out and the levees. I mean, I mean, these levees were built I don't know how many years, decades. Right, and they weren't designed for the decades amount of water. And I don't know what their maintenance is like, but you can't just build a levee and walk away from it. I mean, this is what basically the Army Corps of Engineers does. And, and it is, so it is the same uh, scenario repeating itself over and over. Over and over. Right. What happened in Katrina, it was the issue right. is not only the storm, but because of the infrastructure and the levees right. that they gave away, I was watching, for example, earlier one of the networks, they were reporting on an, in an ongoing evacuation at mm. the hospital. Right. And because, I mean, uh, which is, it sounds a little bit weird, uh, they were evacuating the hospital because the hospital didn't have any running water. I mean, with all the water yeah, all you think <laughs> that had running. fallen there, yeah. they didn't have the, the uh, I guess, the water uh, system right. uh, basically went down, and they said that wasn't only uh, for the hospital, but it, it was in for the entire district. Right. So we have obviously we have scientists, we have people who have been wa- monitoring the weather. We have lessons that we should have learned from Katrina right. and Sandy right. and the other hurricanes. When I watch TV these days and I watch what's going on in Houston, I I see us not ready at all. I see, yes, I see a lot of good stuff now. They brought in the Coast Guard and they're bringing the military. But for example, I've been hearing uh, many critics that no order of evacuation was issued. Yesterday, there was an order of an evacuation or a plea for evacuation for a uh, an area in um, uh, outside Houston. I forgot the name yeah, of it. Yeah. But many uh, people are faulting the mayor of Houston. They're they're faulting the governor of Texas for not giving an order because they thought they can fight nature or ride out the storm. And and now uh, we have. I mean, these are just. Um, 
preliminary figures, but we have 325,000 people who have registered for FEMA assistance. They've uh, already distributed $57 million to help people. 12,400 people who have uh, registered in just Houston as homeless, and the numbers are uh, are going up. And and so what I'm looking again, I, I'm I'm seeing we are not ready and no. things are changing and if it's if it happened in Houston it's gonna happen somewhere else. Anywhere is susceptible. But think about, you know, evacuation. I, I know it's difficult as the mayor said, you can't evacuate six million people. And every time I see evacuations, Oroville Dam was the same thing. Everybody is jammed up on one side of the freeway for miles and the other side going into the evacuation area is wide open. This is not, in my view, really good evacuation planning. The freeway should only flow one way in both directions, out and away from the area that's being impacted. But I think more significantly is with the hurricane, you have advanced warning. They knew five days before it arrived that it was going to be something astronomically high. And I heard one of the generals talking about yesterday about pre-deployment of resources before it got there. And there was none of that. They waited until it happened. And then they came back retroactively to try to help people, which was already too late at that point. When you go back to Katrina and you see things like there was an evacuation, but they presumed that everybody would get in their car and drive away. This left people who were uh, physically disabled, who were elderly, who were in rest homes, people who were in hospitals, children. And so the evacuation plans seem to follow kind of the same mode of uh, operation, and that is you know, a person able to get into their car and leave or walk to a a, a, a collection point and get on a bus and leave. And, you know, I don't, I, I just say, you know, you know, with earthquakes, they happen and you don't even know they're coming. Uh, and the best thing to do is hunker down and wait 72 hours. I don't know what these poor people are going to do. I mean, most of them have lost everything they've got from the what I've seen on television and, uh, and the maps that I've seen. Uh, Houston is pretty much completely inundated, as are some other towns that have been totally wiped out. You can't just bring people back into that. Um, it, it's going to take years to recover from this if we ever do. And for the president to go down there and walk around and congratulate everybody and how all Americans are working together and we're one nation after he spent the last year and a half with all his divisive uh, language and nuances uh, to me is a joke. I mean, I don't take his empathy for this at all. It's I think he'd rather be playing golf that doing any of this is kind of he has to do it or he was forced into it kind of thing. So we don't – I don't see any leadership at the top other than the people, you know, in the municipalities and the mayors and everybody's pointing fingers. And, you know, it would, who's doing most of the work? Once again, it's ordinary citizens helping each other with the assistance of the emergency services and the military. Um, so I just read in the paper the military is going to get 1,680 bayonets now. What are they going to use them for? Why are we buying bayonets, not the military, the police, buying this stuff? And when we have a need, there's no money and there's no funding and there's no coordination. It's just hard to believe. I saw a very surreal picture, actually, 
uh, when uh, President Trump went to Houston, <laughs> some of the uh, demonstrators uh, outside, of course, you don't see many of those on Fox News right, uh, right. or actually on many of the networks. They like to show you, you know, when he Cheering when crowds. he goes out, he, he talks to the uh, to the media as if he's still on the campaign trail. Right. You know, always uh, wants to show the numbers and the supporters. But one, uh, I saw a, a very uh, interesting and I said really surreal picture of uh, some of the demonstrators carrying a, a, a big sign which said on it, uh, rebuild Houston and not the wall. Yeah. And, and exactly. Texas has actually one of uh, Trump's main or major bases for right. support right. and uh, a state, uh, including its its governor and senators, etc., right. who supported uh, the election of Donald Trump and who advocate for building uh, that wall between us and uh, Mexico. Okay. And here uh, we uh, are struggling ourselves uh, from mother nature. Well, we haven't gotten our own house in order yet, and we're we roll from one disaster to the next. And uh, that shows you how quickly priorities change. Exactly. You know? Priorities change. And this is the question. If you had a billion dollars to spare or five billion dollars to spare, where do you spend them? Do you spend them on, on that crazy idea of the wall or do you spend them on rebuilding uh, Texas and Houston? Per- well, it seems that when you have an excess amount of mon- money like that, you give it to the military and you give it to these harebrained schemes like building walls or bolstering some other personal thing, uh, tax cuts. He's talking about tax cuts during a disaster. What relevance does any of this stuff have, you know? I mean, the figures are astounding, and and I can't even find accurate. It's all projections, 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 because still you have many places that are – waist deep or right. even knee deep and so forth. They haven't even assessed yeah. what's under that water. No but I was reading this article and this is in uh, the USA Today and they're just talking about industry and they used one example <laughs> that Harvey has uh, wrecked up to one million cars and trucks. Oh, yeah. One million cars and trucks uh, in, in, in Texas, they, uh, they are estimating about 300,000 to 500,000 vehicles uh, privately owned, and, and, and then the rest just by companies right. and dealerships and so forth. Imagine, one million cars. Well, I mean, basically, you've wiped the city out, and, and we were talking about that yesterday. Who's going to replace all the cars? Who's going to have the money to do that? Um, flood damage is often not you know covered by insurance unless you have a special policy so most of these people probably will lose everything they have they'll have to go into debt the government has to come up with some kind of a funding plan as they have with other disasters but i think this disaster is on a scale that we've never had to deal with before so well uh they're using the the, the terminology including uh, trump of epic proportion. Right. He so keeps what, repeating epic proportion. I've heard him like so many times on TV saying this is of epic proportion. Right. So he shoots a rocket at Korea and they shoot one back that can hit us and we'll have more epic proportions. And how are we going to support and take care of what kind of damage occurs with something like that? So there's, there's this it's seemingly inanely ill-conceived idea about how to deal with things without understanding What's going on in the background? What what are the ramifications and what are the outcomes of, of loose tongues and lips and stupid comments and 
you know, I mean, we're in a dire pickle in this I, country. I think you you said a very important word, which is really priorities. Right. What are... I thought you meant pickle. No, <laughs> no. You, well, I like the pickle. I like pickles. I love pickles. But you said a real important thing, America's priorities. Right. Is it the wall? Is it uh, the witch hunt going after immigrants, undocumented immigrants in this country? Tax reform. Uh, Muslims, banning right. Muslims, uh, picking a fight with uh, another crazy guy there, North Korea, which over, we'll, we'll over talk what? about what that. What would be the purpose of that? You know, and and uh, just when I actually, um, I was looking again at, at these figures and uh, trying to kind of pin it down. You cannot pin down the the extent of the damage, but there are two reports because the range is so wide. You have uh, one, uh, this is, I guess, by an insurance assessor uh, company, uh, or this is Hanover, uh, RE, uh, R-E. Uh, it's one of the largest reinsurers insurers in the world, and they're predicting a price tag of $3 billion on insured losses. And then you have another uh, organization called AccuWeather projecting it to have $190 billion impact on the economy. Oh, I'm sure. It's so so you're a... talking about $3 billion just, right. just on insured. I'm right. not talking about infrastructure and $190 billion on the economy, which is, uh, which is really terrible. And earlier you were talking about the oil, in, oil industry that right. we have in Texas. Right. Uh, I think that's already... These are major refineries and chemical plants that produce a lot of the goods and materials that we use in manufacturing in the rest of the country that have been impacted. Uh, And this is going to have a trickle-down economic effect. I mean, you're going to see the rising oil prices and food prices and commodity prices uh, borrowing heavily from banks in order to rebuild uh, people going into, you know, homeless situations where they've lost everything, they can't recuperate. Um, the the amount of devastation, I'm sure we don't have any sense of, and I, I would say even with $100 billion, I think that's really a conservative amount. Well, b- basically, they're trying to figure out where to place uh, Hurricane uh, Harvey uh, in relationship to the previous ones, Katrina, Sandy, Andrew. But we have the figures from uh, the previous ones because it's been mm-hmm. a while. So Katrina which happened in uh, August of 2005. Right. Uh, so far, the uh, cost was $160 billion. Yes. And you know, it hasn't recovered. No, it never the has. New Orleans right. is not the same. It hasn't returned to where it used to be before. When I was traveling right after that, I met people in Mississippi, I met people in San Francisco who had left New Orleans because they knew they could never recuperate anything that they had. Uh, to get back into a situation that they had prior to it. so And Sandy, Sandy which happened October of 2012, was $70 billion, $70.2 billion. And then, then that, that takes you to Andrew, August 1992, $47.8 billion, Ike, $34.8 billion, and so forth. So it seems to be getting bigger instead exactly. of smaller. You know? the, the I wonder damage, what the cause is. <laughs> The damage, of course, there is the uh, inflation and so forth. But I think 
these hurricanes are becoming more aggressive. Well, and climatologists for years have been talking about superstorms that were going to start. And they were, I think this year they predicted there were going to be six or eight superstorms of proportions that we hadn't seen before. This is one now. So what's, what do we have after this? I mean, it seems that we've affected the, uh, the uh, uh, climate enough uh, that, you know, this stuff is happening, as you just pointed out. They're getting more costly. They're getting bigger. They're affecting more people. They have more of an economic impact. They certainly have a political impact. Um, it remains to be seen what the future holds, but it doesn't pretend to be any better. I looked at a map last night. If the ocean rose 200 feet, what the Bay Area would look like, and it was basically just a small number of islands. Everything else was inundated. So. I think we should all invest in boats. <laughs> boats. Boats are a good investment, you know. Yeah, you're listening to the voice of Phil Pasquini. Phil Pasquini uh, works for the Russia, uh, the Washington Report, not the Russian not Report. Russian. The Washington, you know, now we, we should talk about this. The Washington Report and also reports for us when he's on the road in uh, the Middle East and uh, um, across the globe. Uh, this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We're going to take a short musical break. And then when we return, we want to talk about your experience in Washington, having spent so many days in Washington monitoring what's going on and how is our government in functioning, is functioning or dysfunctioning. Stay tuned. <laughs> All right, we are back. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM. We are also broadcasting this live on Facebook Live. Uh, so we welcome our uh, listeners and viewers on uh, Facebook Live. And of course, uh, our listeners in the San Francisco Bay Area on uh, KPOO. Uh, with us in the studio is uh, Phil Pasquini. Uh, Phil spends most of his uh, time uh, traveling between the Bay Area and uh, Washington, D.C. and the world. And of course, Phil uh, is uh, with the Washington Report and uh, he's also the author of uh, uh, a very important book uh, which focuses on uh, uh, the Islamic influence uh, in the uh, architecture in, uh, in, the, in the United States. And uh, the book uh, name is uh, Arches, Domes and uh, Minarets, which is a beautiful book. I urge all our listeners to check it out uh, online and to see where they can buy this book. Uh, this is a very, very important book, uh, Phil. How, how are you doing with your book tours? Um, I haven't done anything recently, but I have lectured, you know, at a number of colleges in different uh, venues. And uh, the book is pretty well received. It's in about 52 uh, libraries, worldwide academic institutions and so on. So um, those that can appreciate the information have been very supportive. So that's been a good experience. I mean, it, it must be a little bit disheartening uh, uh, to you personally, having worked uh, many years uh, gathering these beautiful photographs. And I should say Thank that you. you are an amazing uh, a photographer and, and it's, it's a piece of art. So the book tells a story through imagery, pictures and art in trying to kind of put together the and people ha, uh, have written different uh, books about the relationship uh, between 
America and Islam going back all the way to the founders of, of this country. Right. But then not too many people, you know, driving by or visiting places from movie theaters uh, to uh, important buildings, etc. And they, they probably pass by these uh, buildings and they don't notice the influence or the impact that uh, Islam true. had on American architecture right. and scenery. And then to spend so much time in Washington, D.C., and then we have a president, and <laughs> he has three items on his checklist, and uh, on top of these items, I mean, here we are. We are dealing with a natural disaster, catastrophe, but here's a president who comes, immigrants, no. Muslims, no. You know, but we all things, have to pull together as things people that are really un-American, in my yeah, opinion, yeah, for so. this country that has welcomed America, uh, immigrants from all over the world. Right, you know, the, right. the statement on the Statue of Liberty, give me your hungry and poor and so forth. And he's just like in a few minutes, right. few minutes or few days projects, not only to Americans, I mean, the world, the world <laughs> that we hate, we hate immigrants. We don't like immigrants. We don't like Muslims. And USA first, which we haven't seen of that USA, what, what, you know, I don't see people rolling in dough and our lives improving here. And you've worked on bridging that gap of in, through education and through art and photography. What do you think about, I mean, how do you feel watching him being there in Washington, D.C. when he was elected? Well, being the descendant of immigrants, who came here in the early 18 or late 1800s and early 1900s, I'm appalled. I mean, there, you know, and he, his roots are Germanic. He's an immigrant. His family, his father was born in Germany, I believe. Um, it, it's anti-American. It's, and it's, he loves to marry immigrants, I should yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it's the same thing that he espouses about, buy only American-made things, but his ties are made in China and his perfume is made, you know, what have you. All this stuff he sells is made somewhere else, but it's, it's one of those do as I say, not as I do. Um, I think it's un-American and it's uncalled for behavior. And, I, and I'm shocked and ashamed that Congress and the Senate are so wimped out by this guy that they won't stand up to him and rally around who we are as a nation and what we want to be as a nation. And instead of equating Nazis with nice people and the Klan with nice people and these stupid statements that he makes that just vilify himself in the, in the light of other people, you, know, you could do so much when you're a president. And to see somebody just get in the office and destroy everything, anything, as you know, it has an Obama stamp on it, is immediately, you know, has to be excised from, from the universe unless it's working and then he takes credit for it. Uh, it's just overwhelming. I mean, I, I, I've never in my life, even with Richard Nixon, who was really not a good president, it wasn't this bad. It, was it wasn't this bad, this bad, but it wasn't also part of the uh, lexicon no, that we, we are seeing now in, in, in D.C. And just to put this into perspective, and, uh, you know, the uh, you've mentioned uh, we, earlier we were talking about uh, before the show – uh, some stats, but right. uh, the Council on American-Islamic Relation, care. Relations yeah. Care, mm -hmm. uh, who th they've been monitoring uh, what's going on. But 
this is a quote from a report that they've had that the number of hate crimes in the first half of 2017 spiked 91% compared to the same period in 2016. Right. So this is how bad things and are. It's not just hate crimes. It's interaction with police. It's enforcement, uh, immigration, um, employment discrimination, people being harassed on the street. I mean, I can tell you that I interview a lot of people and do a lot of stories on people who are uh, protesters who have ongoing vigils or weekly uh, groupings. And they keep telling me, you know, that it's gone from people walking up and disagreeing uh, with their point of view to violent confrontations of verbal abuse, physical abuse. And so the, the whole tempo of being tolerant towards anybody seems to have eroded to the point now. Look at our political demonstrations. You allow people to come to a demonstration and they have helmets and clubs and shields. This is not asking for a demonstration. This is looking for a riot. Uh, Elaine and I were in D.C. one night and we walked down to the White House to see what was going on and there was a huge ring of Secret Service uh, uniform uh, officers in a circle and in the middle were a bunch of signs that said no war in Syria and it was uh, Richard um, I can't think of his name Spencer and his group the neo-nazis calling for no war in Syria because you should you know have a war at home and deal with stuff and then you know they were surrounded by anarchists who were then surrounded by anti-fascists and there was actually a riot of small proportions right there in and among families who came to the White House to look at the White House to see, you know, what their nation is about and enjoy some of the history. And, you know, here these guys come there with nothing. Their intentions are to be as disturbing as possible. They broke off and one group ran one way, another group ran the other direction. So the whole notion of getting together to express your uh, personal views or ideas has grown into political, you know, fisticuffs and, and uh, confrontations, violent confrontations. And then to see this guy stand up one day uh, calling people names and, and doing everything he can to separate people and then come out of the airplane after the, the disaster in Texas and talk about how we're all Americans and we have to pull together. Ed Koch said it best about Trump. He said if he saw his tongue notarized, he wouldn't believe anything he said. <laughs> that, that to That's me a- says it all. I, I mean, <laughs> that's, 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 actually, that's actually a good one. Uh, as you know, I mean, uh, I, I've spent three years in, in Washington, D.C. You know the city. Uh, lived there. And uh, <laughs> fortunately, it was during the Obama administration. Right. Uh, so the atmosphere was totally different. I was like uh, watching him and I, watch, I was watching what's going on in Charlottesville, some of the demonstrations in Washington, D.C., and so forth. And I was thinking to myself, would I have been able to last three years? <laughs> would I have been able to stand being in Washington when this guy is, was in the, in the White House and the atmosphere or the air? And I should ask you this question because you, you know, you've been there before, kind of like let's right. play the game right. before and after. How does it feel now? I mean— to be in Washington, uh, you know, the, the mood, uh, the, I mean, there are, you know, Washingtonians, the stable, right. the, studi- right. the students, the uh, uh, career, I guess, uh, um, civil servants, but then you have this whole change of guard. And how did this affect the, well, well, you know, the atmosphere it, there? It's two cities. It's a city people live in, and it's a political city. Mm-hmm. 
And the city that people live in, I mean, basically people live there. Things go on about the same. Um, the political sides changed because days before the election, there was great energy with people who were supportive of Hillary Clinton and thought, you know, we're going to have the first woman president. In fact, even the, the American History Museum, the Smithsonian Museum on the mall in the First Ladies exhibit had a question. It said, what do we do when the first uh, – what was it called? The first husband takes over and we don't have a first lady anymore. And so there was this great energy and, you know, you saw young women and girls and older women all excited about – whether you like Hillary Clinton or don't, it's really not the issue. But, but the bottom line was there was great energy about change and continue this forward movement with Obama. Some people would disagree with that. But in any case, that didn't happen. The next day, you could cut with a knife – how people were feeling. I mean, everybody was downtrodden. There were very few people in the street. And then the day after that, the city got re-energized against the Trump agenda. And that's what you see. I was interviewing some guys in Sacramento who for 21 years have had a vigil on a street corner about various issues. And they said, you know, we're so tired because nobody else complains about anything. I said, go to Washington, D.C., because there are demonstrations and actions every single day. I mean, very seldom does a day go by where there's not some kind of an action uh, against something that he said or some policy that he's announced or some proclamation that he signed and just the general, you know, direction that the country's going in. It's good for business and it's exciting, mm -hmm. but it's just too much. I mean, what are we really getting done as a government? We have gotten nothing done in the last seven months. The political, the presidential proclamations have been signed, but nothing else of any substance has taken place. We don't have any health care reform, which was the major thing. First day in office, health care is going to be changed. ISIS will be destroyed. First day in office. All these hollow promises that we've heard from every politician that's ever ran for any office, none of it has come about. There's no major legislation. All they want to do is fight among themselves. It's, it's become, you know, a really different city then. And uh, what about the, uh, I guess, the uh, mayhem uh, from uh, these uh, staff changes that uh, Trump has been changing his uh, – staff members faster than changing right. well, his thighs, basically. I mean, the, the people that we've interacted with in the intel community and in the State Department and various think tanks have all said that most of the work right now is being done by staff, that the career diplomats and the career – a lot of in, career intel people who are committed to the country are continuing on in the programs that they're involved in. But so much of the work and, and heads of uh, divisions and so on have not been replaced that there's kind of a stagnation about what's going on. Someone told me that in the State Department, if you call to a country desk to talk to somebody, you get a staff member. Nobody's been appointed to the position under Tillerson, who evidently reigns like a king. I understand that uh, the staff was told that if they see him, they're not to have eye contact or talk to him. So are, are these public servants or are we, do we have new royalty in Washington, D.C.? You know, I thought the swamp was going to be drained. But <laughs> as I said early on, all he's going to do is put worse critters back in than he ever took out. And so, you know, he's uh, cozied up to Wall Street. That was Hillary's great uh, – the, the straw that broke the camel's back. She was too close to Wall Street. What is he doing? 
you know, look at all the stuff that's going. He won't criticize the Russians, but he criticizes uh, anybody that, you know, disagrees with anything he says, his fellow countrymen. What kind of a president operates and runs a country that only goes to three or four states continuously and ignores the other 47 states completely? Has he come to California to give a talk or, or look at what's going on? No, we're the enemy here. Yeah, exactly. He's not exactly. going to be in California, and certainly he's not going to be in San Francisco. Never, never. You know? And he's not welcome, and he knows that. And but, but the joke is that all this inclusiveness and warm, fuzzy stuff he espouses – he doesn't believe it. It's just noise. I mean, when he's reading from a teleprompter, he's one thing, and then the next day he's somewhere else. And this has been a great problem for diplomats internationally that he gives out one message, Tillerson comes up with something else, you know, Congress says something different. There's the continuity that we had is really not there anymore. And then he tweets something at 3 a.m. Right. in the morning. Right. And, and destroys then, everything. And uh, <laughs> Wall Street uh, takes a dive right. from uh, – you know, 50 characters or 60 characters. Well, Elaine characters. and I ran into Bob Dole, and, and a lady was giving him trouble about Trump's tweets, and, and he said, I don't know what a tweet is, but whatever it is, he's got to stop doing it. You know, So I thought that was telling. Um, it's just, it's not the same at all, which is too bad. Last week, uh, uh, last week's show, uh, uh, Jess and I uh, we were discussing, and I just also t- should tell our listeners that Jess is actually in Washington, D.C., uh. uh, but he'll be right here in the studio next week. We, uh, we devoted uh, almost the entire show talking about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, f- uh, because of what was what was happening in Charlottesville and other places in the country. But right here, right here in the Bay Area, there were planned, uh, I guess, KKK and uh, neo-Nazis and whatever, who um, requested permits and and they were granted these permits to, I guess, to demonstrate in uh, right here in San Francisco at Chrissy Field. And also in Berkeley, mm-hmm. uh, the Chrissy Field, uh, they, backed, uh, out, they yeah. backed out of that. Uh, but uh, things also happened in Berkeley. Right. It wasn't as, uh, and thank God it wasn't as was advertised. Uh, they didn't have the numbers, so they didn't have, we didn't have the mass uh, uh, kind of confrontation. In fact, there were, I think I was told there were more police than uh, demonstrators in some areas. <laughs> and in San Francisco, they've had, they put a call, the police chief put a call uh, to put every single police uh, woman and policeman on that, duty yeah. Yeah. Uh, on overtime. They couldn't take a day off for that weekend. Right. Does this surprise you that, you know, when we talk about white supremacy, you think it's something there in far away, but it's actually right here in, no, I, in I, the I, liberal city of San Francisco. If you talk to anybody of color, they'll tell you, you know, what kind of discrimination they face. And, the, you know, to to offset this by saying, oh, it only occurs in the South or, you know, in the industrialized North or whatever, is not being realistic. This stuff goes on everywhere all the time, every day. Someone mentioned to me, isn't it terrible how many blacks are getting shot by police? This never used to happen. It never used to be recorded. It's always been happening. And, and, People never were able to go to court and with any evidentiary material to prove what happened. And so we, you know, this advent of technology of where you can, you know, you, you can remember in the in the 40s and the 50s with communists in the basement turning a, 
a uh, litho machine to, to make pamphlets to organize people to have a demonstration or whatever. And now all you have to do is push a button. Whatever your cause is, there's obviously going to be some followers. You push a button and set something up and thousands of people will show up, hundreds of people or whatever. Um, so we've accelerated all these things and, and the bad with the good. So I'm not the least bit shocked by it. it. I mean, in my own neighborhood in the North Bay, somebody burned a cross on somebody's lawn a few years ago. Uh, it was a little KKK action by a bunch of yahoos. I don't know who they were. I don't know if they caught them or not. Uh, shortly after that, an Asian guy was knifed in a parking lot by somebody yelling at him to go back where he came from. He was born in the United States. And so, I mean, you know, this stuff goes on all the time. So I, I think it's a bit naive of people in the Bay Area to assume that these things only occur elsewhere. They're alive and well everywhere. And I think it's noble to stand up against it and, and to uh, deal with it. But you can see these incidents like the hurricanes are becoming more frequent. They're becoming larger in number. People feel more confident in being able to do this because our leadership is somewhat encouraging uh, that kind of action among people. And then it's doublespeak. The next day you turn around and you talk about unity and being together in one country and all this stuff. The, from the top, there's there's no nothing can be believed in my mind at this point. So this takes us back to priorities, and yeah. I mean, shouldn't uh, white supremacy or the fight against white supremacy be the number one on the agenda on the local thing right here? The economy, helping the people in Houston. Uh, finding jobs, uh, all the promises about jobs, job, jobs, and right. we don't see the jobs happening. But, you know, what you're talking about is interesting because look at the myriad of issues and problems that we have. And as society keeps growing and getting bigger and expanding, we need more government, more laws, more people interacting. It, it, I think it reach, reaches a point where it's almost, if not completely, unmanageable that you can't address all of these things and hope that the outcome is going to be good for all of them, that there are going to be ups and downs and pitfalls. And, you know, one of Trump's things was he wanted to rebuild the bridges and rebuild the dams and rebuild the roads and get rid of potholes. None of that's been done. And there's trillions of dollars that could be spent. And then what happens in the meantime? We have a disaster that's going to probably take a decade or two to get out of. So what is that displacing? You know, and how much worse will things get before they start to make a turn to get better? We've seen bridges collapse. I think it was in Minneapolis when the bridge collapsed at mm -hmm. rush hour and 30 people were killed or whatever. Pieces of freeway dropping in, in uh, Boston in the big dig. Uh, how are we going to address these things in an organized and orderly manner? And that's why I think it's interesting to listen to the military when they're talking about this disaster in Texas and how they would have organized in order to have dealt with it more effectively than allowing a municipality to deal with it. This running in all directions at once, um, you know, try to run a military campaign the way the country's being run right now and you'll never get anywhere. You'll never even get off first base, you know. You're listening to the voice of Phil Pasquini. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're going to take a short musical uh, break, and then when we come back, we are going to talk about the role of the media. <laughs> Welcome.
Welcome back to Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. Also, I'd like to welcome our uh, listeners on SoundCloud later on and iTunes. And of course, uh, we are streaming live on Facebook. Uh, with us in the studio is uh, Philip Pasquini from the Washington Report. I have to, to say I read the Washington Report uh, as much as possible and uh, regularly and read uh, Elaine's articles, Elaine Pasquini's articles in the Washington Report. And you don't get, you know, this type of perspective. I mean, I feel the media is now split. There are two words of the media mm-hmm. uh, right here in the United States. You have the Fox News, you have the mainstream media, you have uh, radio stations like uh, KPO, where you know we we have different perspectives, and more than ever now, the 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 media is polarized during Trump. Right. I mean, uh, how have you been balancing the act between what the mainstream media tries to put out, the Fox News type, and your role as a journalist, Elaine's role as a journalist to bring people to kind of, uh, to um, the real, the reality or to to the perspective that we're trying to. uh, Well, that's called media literacy. Mm -hmm. And people need to listen to all kinds of input. And they need to be able to make intelligent decisions on what they hear to draw some sort of conclusion about what's really going on. And when I hear things like the media are the enemy of the people and the media lies, these are cute little aphorisms, phrases. But what does, I I think more importantly, what is the media's role in a democracy? It's okay to have counter views and media that uh, doesn't agree with the mainstream or is alternative. But it's incumbent upon people in a free society to have lots of information. And when you can't control it and you have a problem with being able to – not being able to control it, such as our president who wants to control everything. And now he's got this group of people whom he can't control or intimidate. Who I I mean one of my favorite guys is Jake Tapper who gets on his case who he hates. He's just under – he looks at him and he's under his skin right away. But he asks the questions that need to be asked. And he doesn't get the responses that, that are dignified. Well, if you ask him something he doesn't like, then you're the enemy. Oh, of course. I mean, of he course. stands Instantly. there yeah, pointing his finger towards right. cameras, naming reporters, naming... Uh, right. Your fake media, fake your media. fake news. And talk about fake news. He should know better than anyone because he's the biggest fake newsmaker in the world. You know, somebody <laughs> once said... But that's not how he feels. Oh, I know. Yeah. Neither does his son. And this is something actually very interesting I was reading in, uh, in Newsweek uh, earlier before I him on the show, uh, President Trump's second son or second oldest son, Eric, has claimed that negative media coverage of his father is so ferocious that it would lead another person to depression and then suicide. And uh, so the 33-year-old <laughs> uh, businessman made the comments on the Joe Pags show a nationally syndicated radio show where he also said the president had to tune out negative coverage from the mainstream media. Uh, I guess that's why he reacts to it because he's tuned it out. Yeah, so he says, if they weren't talking about you, you wouldn't be doing something right, and it's important to keep it in context. And then he actually pretty much, uh, to summarize it, said that 
that the media coverage of his dad would drive anyone to suicide. Well, that's he's covering for his dad. But I mean, let's be realistic. There has never been a president that had a wonderful experience with media. It's always adversarial, and it, it should be that way. We should hold our leaders accountable, and they should be able to answer. I mean, this guy has not had a press conference yet. Think about it, except the one he had in Trump Tower a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> that was just anything but sensical. Yeah, it was just rambling, and you know. So somebody once asked, actually, it was a Western. A journalist who said to somebody from the, the communist bloc that he was amazed that people got such bad information. They never knew what the truth was. And the guy said, he, he said, I feel sorry for you because your news is really non-existent. It's state-owned and run. And, and the retort was, I feel sorry for you because all we have to do to get at the truth is believe the opposite of what's being said. And you have no idea what's going on because you're getting all kinds of information. So, so there's things to be said in both directions. <laughs> on that note, we are coming to another end of Arab Talk on KPO. Watch us live on Facebook or on KPO 89.5 FM. See you next week.